Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. People are talking about the big earnings recession. We have, of course, uh, data particularly having to do with the housing market in the United States that has been weaker uh, than some people would like to see. The question is, does this indicate a broader slowdown or is this just a seasonal blip uh, that will recover later in the year? Joining us now to talk about that, Matt Forster, BNY Mellon's Lockwood Chief Investment Officer, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Matt Wonderful having you, as always. Good to be back. Thank you. So uh, let's start there. It seems like stock markets are looking through a lot of the less positive data. Bond markets, maybe not so much. Right. Uh, So uh, markets are in this sort of hurry up and wait you know, moment. I mean, I know you have small children. I know when I'm trying to get out the house, I've got, uh, they've got to go get their socks. They get their shoes. They forget their coat. Life and, you know, is mar- markets, are, markets yes. are, you know, are worried about these things, but we're waiting for decisions around China and uh, whether Xi and Trump are going to come to an agreement and how substantive that agreement will be. We're waiting for a deal on Brexit. We're waiting on a deal in North Korea. Um, we're waiting on the FOMC next week. We're waiting for a Mueller report. There's all kinds of things that markets are, are thinking about. Um, and I think one of the most interesting ones is whether or not we're, how we're assessing this data that's coming out of the first quarter and you know what these things look like. So we've seen seasonality. Uh, one of your economists wrote about this in a March 4th piece a couple of weeks ago. Yelena Shalateva uh, wrote, yeah, wrote about how um, the U.S. GDP data is showing this residual seasonality and sort of a data artifact that seems to have been with us from uh, almost the um, recession period, the Great Recession. And we're also seeing that in corporate earnings statements. So if you look at analyst estimates of what's going to occur, so every first quarter, with the exception of 2018, where we're reacting to a tax cut, uh, for the last number of years, we've seen first quarter data really weaken up in terms of analyst expectations for what were going to happen. And then as the year went forward, we had, you know, pickups in that as the year went on. So uh, I think those are really interesting. And it seems to me like markets are looking through a lot of these things. And of course, they're probably also expecting relatively positive results from some of these bigger issues they're facing. The, the trade deal, for example, I think we've priced in some amount of a eventual deal that we think we might get, whether that's a month or two months, who knows. But um, it looks like the markets are thinking rather positively about how these will eventually have outcomes in uh, for markets. So going forward into the second quarter, just to begin there, um, it, looking through seasonality is great, when the trend continues to hold. So essentially markets hoping that this trend continues as we approach the second quarter, second half of the year, things will resume, pick up again, even without like the tax cuts we had in 2018 and, and markets will again rally. Right. So th- I, I think we, you know, as you look throughout the year, it's clear that analyst estimates are rising as the year progresses. Uh, we're also seeing relatively strong top line growth. So we had almost 6%, you know, revenue growth in the S&P 500 for the fourth quarter. So some of this does seem to be uh, some amount of earnings estimates. It was pretty clear that you could see we were not going to get the type of earnings jolt that we got from 2018. That would be crazy to expect that again. Um, 
And we've also had $20 a barrel off of WTI. So remember what we went through this a little bit in 2014 and 2015, we had a much bigger decline in energy prices, but the energy component of the S&P 500 earnings is also declining, you know, and that's enough to cause, you know, a temporary slowdown in the earnings estimate. I, I have to wonder, okay, <coughs> so you're talking about the equity markets looking through some of the weaker than expected data, holding in, that's why we're seeing this rally that is uh, continuing. My question is, where do bonds fit into that picture, given the fact that yields are now retracing any gains uh, that we saw in 2019? Uh, and you have some people saying that the Federal Reserve's next move will be a rate cut. Do you think they are wrong? Do you think that stocks are right and bonds are wrong right now? Um, yes, yeah, so I... I think that's still up in the card. So I think the question for us has been whether or not the Fed is actually changing policy or whether they're changing communication strategy. The policy of being patient really hasn't changed very much. The question is, when is the Fed going to be impatient again? And will that actually occur in this cycle? And I think that's still relatively an open question. Again, we're waiting like the Fed in this data-dependent mode. And I don't think we're going to know for a while. And I think the Fed is very aware of these uh, data, seasonality data artifacts from uh, from the crisis and these last number of years. And so uh, they may take more time to assess whether or not they're actually going to change policy at all. And like always, you have to watch what the central banks do uh, and not what they say. You know, so uh, you can listen to them, but they're talking about a lot of things that are helping them support markets and policy. Uh, you know, the questions about how they're going to deal with the balance sheet, how they might deal with an inflation target going forward. All this is news to the market because it's sounds like there could be additional stimulus uh, coming to the markets at some point in time, and they like that. Um, but, uh, you know, you have to watch, again, what they're actually doing and what policies are actually being implemented, and that hasn't been do much you, yet. Do you think, though, with like markets looking for additional stimulus, if the data gets strong, we could actually see the other side? They flipped very quickly from hawk to dovish, if you will. If they flip in that same sort of pattern again, if the data really comes in strong, Bad news for markets. I agree. That's going to be a risk for uh, for equity markets if we get into that place. And the question again would be how many. I mean, if it's a rate hike or two, which I think would be the kind of consensus estimate or where we're going now. But I mean that. I mean one later in 2019, maybe one in 2020. I don't know that that's a giant deal. Uh, but uh, I think the overall question of whether the Fed is actually done here is going to be a real question as we go forward into 2019. Matt Forrester, we love having you. Thank you so hey, much for thanks. being here. Matt Forrester is BNY Mellon's Lockwood Chief Investment Officer talking about uh, that weaker data that, frankly, stock investors are looking through. Lisa Abramowitz here, Paul Sweeney, my co-host and colleague, off today. I am joined by the great Vince Signorella, a resident trader, storyteller, and uh, extraordinary market watcher here at Bloomberg LP. Very much on the forefront of people's minds this week has been Boeing. Shares down another 1.5% after the FAA joined in with all of the other nations around the world that have uh, ordered a stop to the 737 MAX jet and saying to Boeing, you know, honestly, uh, no, these need to be taken out of circulation while we figure out uh, what to do about the problem. Joining us now, Benedict Camel. He is a Bloomberg senior editor covering company news. And Benedict, can you just give us the latest with respect to the investigation into the second fatal crash of the 737 jet? 
So there is a picture that is emerging thanks to some of the data that's becoming available. Uh, in principle, we now have the uh, the black boxes, uh, the flight recorder and the, and the um, and the voice recorder that are in Paris um, being read out. We don't have the results of those yet, but that will give us arguably the most conclusive evidence. But we have a couple of other pieces that are starting to put together a, a picture. We uh, heard overnight that uh, authorities on the ground, uh, the sort of search and rescue and recovery crew on the ground, found uh, a, a small device, essentially no bigger than a screw. But it was an interesting component because it showed that the trim on the plane had been raised to lower the plane's nose. And that showed that it was actually at the wrong angle. Again, Note of caution, this is a plane that came down at incredibly high speeds, so it could have been uh, somehow uh, caused by the impact. Uh, but again, that is one piece of evidence that shows that principally everything went wrong with this flight very early on. There was a report overnight as well that a panicky voice from the cockpit showed that the pilot struggled to keep the plane under control. So there is this picture, as I said, emerging of a of a uh, a trip that uh, really went horribly wrong early on, and that is uh, part of the evidence that uh, prompted the FAA to finally respond uh, late uh, this week. So, Benedict, does this take, um, or is this part of the story, or does this take the software uh, conversation off the table? Are they moving in a different direction? I don't think it takes the software conversation off the table. Just to, re to remind people, there is that piece of software in this plane that helps stabilize the aircraft. It has to do with the new engines on the plane that are slightly bigger, slightly heavier, and that changed sort of the, the center of gravity of the jet. So to counter that, they introduced the software, but there seems to be a case where the software and the pilot didn't sort of interact perfectly. So this is still something that is being investigated at the moment, certainly not off the table. Whatever happens, Boeing has a very keen interest in finding as much evidence as quickly as possible because the last thing they want is some sort of inconclusive evidence or no evidence whatsoever yeah. and that's where the uh, the flight recorder will be helpful. We have a first image of this flight recorder. It looks badly mangled but broadly intact. Uh, these are very sort of uh, fortified um, devices and hopefully the BEA, which is the French authority, they will be able to give a readout. They've managed to do this under very difficult circumstances of recorders that have, that have been submerged in some cases for years yeah. and they still managed to get the full data so hopefully are high, they'll be able to do the same thing here. Benedict, 20 seconds here. I'm just wondering, uh, have Airbus and the big Chinese aircraft uh, manufacturer, have they really been aggressively trying to pursue business and get away uh, some, some sort of competitive advantage from Boeing here? Uh, the short answer is no. Aggressive is probably n not sort of what they're trying to be right now. There's sort of this unwritten rule in aviation that if, if there is a tragedy uh, on, on one company, the others try to sort of keep a very low profile. Mm. Um, but you can imagine that behind the scenes, they will probably start to position themselves. We have had some airlines say, we're not sure about this order book anymore. How they will wiggle out of it is another question, but that might potentially open some business for Airbus and the Chinese, which will create a very interesting dynamic. Benedict Camel, thank you so much for being with us. Benedict Camel, senior uh, Bloomberg senior editor for Company News, joining us uh, with Boeing shares down one and a half percent.
Lisa Abramowitz here. Vince Signorella joining me today. Paul Sweeney is on a well-deserved vacation. The pound is gaining a little versus the dollar today after sinking yesterday. It has been Brexit week. And joining us to discuss is none other than Marion Harkin, European Union Parliament member representing Ireland. Uh, she joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios in New York. Marion, thank you so much for being with us here today. Great to be here. Happy Patrick's Day. St. And Patrick's to you. Day. Um, I wanted to start with why is it so difficult for Theresa May to get through her plan? Well, the withdrawal agreement has three parts. Citizens' rights, the divorce settlement, the money, and the big issue, the Irish backstop. Now, what is the Irish backstop? The Irish backstop is that the, all of the UK, including Northern Ireland, would remain in a customs union with the EU, but that furthermore, the North of Ireland would uh, have regulatory uh, alignment with the South. So that means uh, that that will be in place until a trade deal is done, which would negate the need for any such agreement. But of course, what the British are afraid of is that maybe that trade deal won't be done. Maybe it won't be sufficient that the backstop will never be needed. The backstop is merely an insurance policy. Nobody wants to use it. Not the EU, not the UK, not Ireland. But it's there to preserve the Good Friday Agreement and no hardening of the Irish border. And that's the difficulty Theresa May has. But as you say, it's in everyone's best interest to get a, a trade deal through. Yes. It, it seems unrealistic that the backstop would be there indefinitely. That that this, It, it seems that the fear of never having a trade deal or, or an acceptable trade deal is, is superfluous. I mean... I agree. It, now, a trade deal is never easy and it takes time. And that's one of the issues because the withdrawal agreement uh, is in place until... The end of December 2020. So it's not a lot of time. But of course, there could be an extension yeah. if it's needed. Uh, but there is this fear that it may not be sufficient. But everybody is intent on ensuring it's sufficient. But these things are never simple. And uh, therefore, many of the hard Brexiteers do not want to find themselves in this position. Are we closer today to a second referendum on Brexit than we were a week ago? I don't think so, and I'll tell you why. I think Theresa May might just get her deal through next week. I think there's a real possibility there because people's backs are to the wall. A second referendum, Labour is will he, won't he, one day yes, another day no, and instinctively, Jeremy Corbyn does not want a second referendum. He's a Brexiteer, really. So there's the Conservatives are split. And it's, I think it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to get sufficient people in the House of Commons to vote for that. A lot of people want it, but we're not looking at a majority. And to me, the best chance at this stage is that May's deal might squeak it next week. So... Walk us through that a little bit. Suppose, uh, yeah. and, the, and it's penciled in for Tuesday, I should yes. say, this vote. If the vote gets through, if she goes, third time's a charm, yes. and gets her deal through, what's the next step? Well, just how I should get through. The Attorney General 
Jeffrey Cox, whose advice really led to her deal being thrown out this week, is looking at it again. Uh, the DUP, I believe, are around London this weekend. A lot of people are talking. And remember this, the hard Brexiteers know that if May's deal is not accepted <laughs> next week, then they are looking at perhaps an indefinite suspension of Article 50. And that's the last thing they want. They may be prepared to accept this Brexit. It's not what they want, but it might be the least worst option. And people's backs are to the wall on this. And for those who really want Brexit, this may be their last opportunity to guarantee it. So they might take it, despite the fact that they have said time and time again, it's not acceptable. Right now, do you get the sense that Brussels, that the European Commission wants to be dealing with Theresa May and only Theresa May and not a potential successor here? I think so. Um, I, I think Brussels, I was there this week in Strasbourg. A lot of um, speeches were made and people were putting their positions forward. There's a certain level of impatience that's probably heading towards frustration, but nonetheless, there's a lid on it. Um, I think people still hope that Theresa May can finally do this. But Barnier was very clear this week. He said, the negotiations are over. It's done. And talking about any extension of the deal, again, it was very clear from senior figures that only if the British have a plan uh, will the EU consider an extension. But perhaps to me, uh, the statement from the European Commission that really says where it's at at the moment is this. And they've said there are two ways for the UK to leave the European Union with a deal or without a deal. The European Commission is ready for either. So that tells you where the EU is at at the moment. So the, the EU is very prepared for a hard Brexit if, if this deal perhaps should fall by the wayside. Look, nobody can be prepared for a hard Brexit as such. I mean, this week, for example, we put through a lot of contingency legislation. I put through legislation on the fact that if people have moved from the UK to Europe or vice versa, that their social security coordination is in order, that citizens won't lose out. There was contingency legislation put through on aviation, on many, many other issues. Uh, but that's that's bottom that's bottom line stuff. Yeah. That is not anything extra. And definitely a business and markets would react with horror if if there was a hard Brexit. So we're as prepared as we can be. Marion Harkin, thank you so much for being with us. And again, uh, happy St. Patrick's Day. I imagine that your trip here will be a bit of a reprieve from the Brexit experience if not for just maybe a couple hours. Yes, at least you can talk to taxi drivers here and they don't automatically ask you about Brexit. <laughs> We're trying to change that. Marion Harkin, European Union Parliament member, representing Ireland, joining us here in our 1130 studios in New York.
The tragedy in New Zealand has rocked the world. At least 49 people massacred at a mosque by a gunman with extreme uh, views, white supremacist views. Uh, Of course, this is absolutely a humanitarian tragedy. There is a business side to it. We are going to dig into it. There is no good transition uh, from human tragedy to uh, the business-based case. And yet, uh, we do want to focus on Facebook and its role as the perpetrator live-streamed this horrible tragedy on Facebook and YouTube. Facebook shares down nearly 3%. Joining us here in our 1130 studios is Garrett DeVink, who covers technology for us at Bloomberg. Uh, Garrett, can you give us a sense of how much of Facebook's share decline is due to uh, their ability or lack thereof of monitoring and quickly responding to something as horrific as this versus some of the turnover that we've seen just in the upper management there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think when you're seeing with attacks such as this one, I mean, Facebook, YouTube, other internet platforms. They're intrinsically part of how these things happen nowadays. This attacker clearly had what, you know, what is probably best called a social media outreach strategy, right? They had been posting a little bit on Twitter, hinting about some of these actions. And then when they went out and did it, they went and posted in certain, you know, alt-right, far-right communities around the world to sort of, you know, gain traction, gain support. There was a manifesto that very clearly was focused on, you know, had had a lot of information to sort of you know, get out there for people to kind of be talking about it, to be sharing these ideas and memes, trying to analyze them. That's the whole point of what happened here. And then at the end of the day, when they actually went to do the attack, they went live on Facebook. And so I think the share reaction is because there might be some concern from the investor community that, you know, either through regulation or through self-regulation, the companies will stop allowing live streaming, which is a product that they have had for a couple years now and has been, you know, a big source of engagement and, 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 and from Facebook's perspective, uh, an important part of future growth. You mentioned regulation. I mean, this has been a big push for some presidential candidates, Elizabeth Warren specifically, wanting to break up some technology companies. You see, a, you think you see a spillover from this from Facebook into other other places of technology? Yeah, and I, I want to. I know we're talking about Facebook, but I do want to say that you know YouTube also is is a big part of what happened here because the video was live on Facebook it was quickly taken down you know not immediately but still quite quickly i think after about 17 or 18 minutes or so but it had been recorded by other people and then started being reposted on YouTube and so YouTube is kind of the distribution method for a lot of this content when it comes to regulation, I mean, I have to sort of say that as a reporter covering this for the last couple of years, I've become a little bit cynical because we've been talking about regulation time and time again. And although some countries do have some regulation, for example, in Germany, there are rules about what you can and can't post about, you know, Holocaust related content, you know, anti-Semitic related content in the U.S. and other sort of, you know, major, major places where these companies are actually based. We haven't seen any strict regulation changes. I guess that there's a question of what is the correct approach to regulating uh, some of this type of behavior because Facebook has uh, deployed a thousand plus person team to try to figure this out. I just have to wonder, I mean, could it be the other way around that, that Facebook and other tech giants cooperate with local authorities to pin down people who are trying to use these as, you know, these platforms with social media strategies to perpetuate hate and violence? I mean, I think that Facebook and the other platforms are already doing that. I mean, they they have 
had incidents in the past where people say they're going to go and do something and then they went and did it and people say why didn't you tell anyone about this why didn't you report this and there are places you know there are times where facebook will report things they'll even report um you know if someone is threatening to harm themselves or to kill themselves they will report that to local law enforcement which obviously opens up a whole new bag of questions about this tech company's private company you know a a a corporation's role in society and safety and health and law enforcement that brings in the big brother question i mean is it is it possible though that the technology is just not there to monitor this technology i mean you know we we in this business have editors generally speaking before we can publish something uh when you're talking about live streaming it's it's out there as soon as somebody wants it out there there's no no filter so live streaming the question is should we just ban it or not because at the end of the day if you're going to have it it's going to go out there no filter there's not really any great way to stop it but what i think is a major question that I'm asking today is why was this video continually allowed to be reposted? Even now, a colleague of mine said they were able to find it on YouTube through a few minutes of searching, and that's because people are constantly trying to repost it and it's being taken down. But Google has thrown more than 1,000 people, thousands of people, I think the last number was 10,000 people that they've hired to moderate content. They have the greatest minds in the business when it comes to algorithms and recognizing videos like this. And they have been able to do a pretty good job of keeping copyrighted, copyright infringement videos from even finding their way onto the platform. If I want to post a popular song, they don't even let me upload it. The algorithm recognizes it before it even gets to the public. So why in this case, when we all knew what the video was, have they not been able to stop it from being uploaded in the first place? Garrett DeVink, thank you so much for being with us. Garrett DeVink covers technology at Bloomberg, joining us at our, in our interactive broker studios. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.